Hi, this is Drew. I just wanted to offer a point of clarity before we get into the episode. Um, the episode you're about to listen to, Dr. Matt Barrett, I hope you enjoy. It's, uh, it's, it's really good. There's a point in there a few minutes in where uh, I mentioned this concept of the invisible church. And as I went and listened and played it back uh, before publishing it, um, I didn't really like, uh, I didn't really think I was that clear on what I was saying. So I just wanted to take the opportunity here to offer some clarity on it. Uh, the invisible church, what I meant by that was the, the, this concept that the reformers held to, uh, the reformers of the 16th century, this concept of what the true church is, um, which is um, not something they invented, but it, um, it, it goes back to, well, it has some precedence in the early church, um, where the church was always understood, of course, as something here on earth. It's something we experience here on earth together. It's something we worship um, in, but um, the church has always been understood to have a transcendent value to it as well, or a transcendent dimension to it, being the mystical body of all believers. And so fast forward to the 16th century, um, the reformers, such as Luther and Calvin, they, they understood the, um, and Philip Melanchthon, who articulated this very well, um, in his writings, the church is wherever the gospel is rightly preached and then heard, as well as the sacraments being duly administered, because wherever the gospel is is preached and heard um, is where the good news, of course, is heard. The good news of uh, God through Christ Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? We are saved by faith in Christ's um, um, life, death, and resurrection. Um, we are saved on account of Christ, not by anything we do, not by our own righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness uh, is, 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 by, is how we are saved, by which we are saved. And so um, where that good news is heard um, and trusted in, that is, um, that is uh, who is in the church, right? So the justified sinners, right? Uh, the sinners who are justified by faith. Um, that um, that comes from the proclamation and hearing of the gospel. And so that is where, um, so the true church is not necessarily the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the Lutheran Church or the churches of the Reformed tradition, right? There can be true Christians found amongst all those church bodies um, because it's, um, it's something that that's ultimately transcends those types of, of uh man-made boundaries. And so um, that is the concept of, of the invisible church, right? It is a mystical body of sorts. And so that's what the concept of the church the reformers held to, uh, which is different from the concept of the church that the Roman Catholic Church, of course, holds to, um, and which sees itself as, as really having the full uh, validity uh, in calling it of being the true church, of, of seeing itself as having uh, the, if not the only right, at least the, the fullest sense of having the right to call itself the true church because they see themselves as um, the church that's been instituted by Christ here on earth. Um, and that is to be found within uh, their, uh, in, in their constituted church body of the Roman Catholic Church. And so uh, it's, just a, it's just a different concept. And so that's what I meant by invisible church. Uh, but without further ado, I uh, hope uh, you all enjoy this episode. God bless.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doc Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. This is Andrew, or Father Drew, and joining uh, James and myself today is Dr. Matthew Barrett, uh, a historian and scholar of the Reformation. Dr. Barrett is an associate professor of theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of numerous books, some of the more recent ones being None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God in 2019, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel in 2020, and Simply Trinity in 2021. He's joining us today to talk about and give us a peek of his upcoming book, Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving uh, the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, which will be... uh, released uh in about a week and so um you can also tune in to hear dr barrett regularly at credo podcast that is c-r-e-d-o which is connected with credo magazine of which he is executive editor both the podcast and the magazine regularly serve as forums for topics of theology especially in relation to the reformation so uh dr barrett thanks for being on the podcast today yeah, thank you for having me. It's yeah. good to uh, to talk some theology. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to it. And um, I'm sure, you know, many are excited to read your book, Reformation as, Re- as Renewal. Um, I see it advertised a lot, uh, at least on my end. Maybe it's just the algorithms that have me and my interest figured <laughs> out that it shows up a lot as, as I scroll. Um but it sounds like it's going to be a good continuation, you know, on the conversation about Reformation. And, uh, and importantly, it, it sees the Reformation, um, from what I gather, in its historic setting, kind of the yeah. philosophical, intellectual milieu. And, um, you know, I'm a, I've read and I'm a fan of, like, scholars like Heiko Oberman and Stephen Osmond, you know, who wrote, you know, kind of that trend of scholarship since the kind of the 80s and 90s, who's who, um, yes, even though the Reformation it was in one end a decisive break from the past in a certain sense, uh, many of the seeds were planted for it really in the late medieval tradition. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, and so, you know, and also the Reformation being, uh, is at least, at least the people behind it, they saw it as a recovery of what was good in the past. So I, it sounds like this book is really going to emphasize that a lot. And so, um, and of course, the subtitle of your book is uh, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So, um, But I, I want to start first with asking you, what got you interested in the Reformation and the Reformational period? Oh, goodness. Uh, you're asking me to go way back now. <laughs> uh, it's hard to remember what first uh, inspired me uh, in that direction. Uh, I think early on, especially as a young Christian, um, the church fathers were were quite influential. Um, I remember reading Augustine very early, and that changed me, reading Augustine's Confessions, uh, that changed me in a significant way. But I also remember very early on uh, reading Calvin's Institutes. And uh, I was a young Christian at the time, but I remember reading through Calvin's Institutes, and uh, I I think I came, it it wasn't 
it, it didn't take long till I realized that here was a biblical scholar who, yes, is writing commentaries on the Bible, who's preaching regularly on God's word. And yet at the same time, he's concerned about the theological welfare of his congregation. Uh, and so he, and, and not just that, but even uh, students of theology that would go on to be pastors and preachers themselves. Uh, and so he's writing catechisms and confessions. And uh, early on, his, his early editions of his institutes are, well, much smaller versions of what comes by 1559, but uh, it's an attempt on Calvin's part to instruct, even to catechize in a sense, um, in order to uh, hand on uh, the Reformation faith mm -hmm. uh, to the next generation. I think when I was reading through Calvin's Institutes, even though er when I was young, you know, a young Christian, I, I didn't quite know the entire context, uh, it, was, it was conspicuous enough that, that here is Calvin Yes, he's putting forward uh, Protestant principles, such as sola fide and sola scriptura, uh, and, and, and uh, he's articulating union with Christ and, and so much more. Uh, and yet, at the time, it was impossible to ignore the fact that Calvin was so conversant with mm -hmm. uh, the church fathers as well as uh, certain medieval uh, theologians. And it wasn't just that he was conversant uh, and aware, uh, but he was actually trying to retrieve that which he felt responsible to carry forward. Mm -hmm. and, and just in a very primitive sense, uh, that left an impression on me. I thought, this is the way... Uh, this is at least what it's supposed to mean <laughs> to be mm -hmm. Protestant. And it struck me at the time how different that was from Protestants I knew. Yeah. Today. Now, now, what was your, your background? Because so you, you were in a certain Protestant <laughs> environment. Yeah, so I, I grew up, I'm from California originally. And um, though I'm now, you know, in Kansas City and, and love it, love the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in more or less a, a, just a free church type environment. And so as you can imagine, this was missing. Yeah. Um, there were many good things that uh, my, in, in my experience that churches I, I uh, was part of uh, when I was a young Christian did well, emphasizing, uh, say, the Bible or loving one another mm -hmm. um, but there was also a lot missing. And uh, like I said, when by the time I opened Calvin, it hit me that, well, first of all, where's, where has theology been? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the move, I think, is an important one, right? That, yes, we preach God's word. I, the, the churches I grew up in were faithful to do that sometimes even verse by verse, which, which was tremendous. Um, but sometimes Christians I knew didn't know what to do then when they were posed with a big question, maybe even a systematic question mm -hmm. that 
that uh, transcended any particular passage or book of the Bible and, and really required a more uh, theological contemplative answer. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, when I started to read Calvin, that was, uh, the, though I was also reading Augustine, which actually was coincidentally very fitting, given mm -hmm. how much Calvin quotes Augustine, uh, that proved to be really eye-opening uh, in my experience. You know, it's, um, I've kind of noticed that too. Well, you said kind of the free church background or the free church environment you grew up in. I, I've noticed kind of the freer the church and the more autonomous the church, I guess, um, <laughs> perhaps the farther it has fallen away from, um, I mean, you get bits of the ref, like you said, there were good things about it. The reformational yeah. heritage pieces, good pieces of the reformational heritage still came through in some way, but, but yeah, I've noticed, I think pastorally, a lot of people, uh, are carrying a lot of big questions and it was, it was really amazing when I started to really start to really seriously study theology and theologians of the past i've realized how these big questions are not new questions and they've been tackled mm -hmm. and uh pe they've been tackled by people with uh with a con concern of trying to read it or to come at it the best they could through the light of scripture and that's what you see yeah. um in theologians of all the history of the church and so i think that's why church history is so Im important and i and um one of the points of this podcast is to emphasize um, how, you know, Protestants, in fact, do have that that resource, that well to, to draw from, you know, from figures in our own past and heritage. So, yeah. So, you know, you're Baptist. James and I here are Episcopalian. And, you know, for instance, a lot of Episcopalians um, uh, are, you know, our parishioners who listen to this show will relate we'll recognize the phraseology of uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You know, we say this in creedal statements, uh, including in church every week, every Sunday, when we say the Nicene Creed at our Eucharist. And for some, if, if people hear that in a church setting, that isn't a Catholic church, that is a Roman Catholic church, yeah. but yet they hear those words that we believe in a one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So for some that begs the question, what exactly are we, you know, Episcopalians or Reformed Baptists, why, why are we using this phrase uh, about ourselves? Are we, are we Catholic? Um, well, go, go ahead and break that down for us, I guess, tackle the yeah. Catholic, this concept of Catholicity. Yeah. So uh, this brings us right to the center of my book because you're exactly right. Sometimes when people hear the word Catholic today, they immediately go to Roman Catholic. Um, but the way that, that we're using the word Catholic is different. Um, and I, maybe I could be even so bold to say we're not limiting the word or, or narrowing the word to Roman. But it, um, my book would argue that the Protestants saw Catholicity as far more expansive than that. And that was one of their main criticisms. Um, mm -hmm. You think of Calvin, for example, this is one of Calvin's main criticisms in response to some of his Roman um, uh, Roman uh, opponents is he says to them, you know, you are calling uh, Christians to come back to, to Mother Rome, but uh, you've confined Catholicity to Rome. 
And so Calvin says that's a problem because uh, Catholicity is actually much broader than that. Um, this comes out especially in um, the 1540s. Uh, you think of uh, the mid 1540s, for example, and the Diet of uh, Spire, in which Cal uh, well, you have all these presentations, right, uh, to uh, Charles V. And uh, Calvin, at one point, is accused of being this innovative uh, and, and rash, innovative and pious monster. And, you know, Calvin didn't take that too well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and his response is essentially, what you know what what how could how could they say this and the reason calvin is so disturbed by that charge is because he sees his reformed articulation of of the church as um, a renewal of catholicity not an abandonment mm -hmm. an abandonment of, of catholicity uh, Calvin said, no, that, that would be the radicals, but I'm not a radical. Um, I'm actually attempting to renew the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which I suppose raises the question, then what do we mean by Catholic? Well, when that word is used in, say, the Nicene Creed uh, towards the end, um, uh, the word simply means universal. It's referring to the church universal. And that uh, is full of meaning, isn't it? Because uh, the church universal is not only the church um, across time, uh, going back to uh, the church fathers and even the apostles, but it's also the church globally. And Calvin, uh, Calvin understood that. And this too becomes a, a weapon in his hand because Calvin can say, well, what about the East? Um, should I not be quoting the Eastern Fathers? Uh, it, you know, you read Calvin's Institutes, of course he's, he quotes the Eastern Fathers everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see his point. Uh, I think for, for us as Protestants, you know, and, and this is something, whether you're a Reformed Presbyterian, whether you're an Anglican, uh, whether you're Lutheran, whether you're Baptist, the remarkable thing about the 16th century, and, and I think we could, you know, add the 17th century, is despite all the differences that uh, these traditions have, uh, they more or less agree on this point. They more or less agree that when it comes to um, the invisible church and when it comes to our faith and the object of our faith, which is Christ, and the, the God the God of Christ, right? Uh, the God of the gospel, if we could put it that way. Um, our faith is, is not limited to Rome, but it actually is far more expansive than Rome. And it stretches down through the ages so that we too have every right to say with the creed, we are part and we confess, we believe um, that word credo. We believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right. Um, yeah. It, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, the Catholic Church, um, of course, famously or infamously, however you want to look at it, uh, well, and at least, well, this is more so pre-Vatican II. Uh, there was the concept that there is no salvation outside of the church. Um, 
and that's probably the, the current Catholic stance, even though there's some nuance there and there's some things to parse out with that. Um, but uh, that's actually true for at least Reformational Protestantism as well, because um, that there's no salvation outside the church, because, but they're working with two different concepts of church. Um, with, with the Reformational Protestant, I mean, these 16th century bodies that you said, as much as they differ with each other on things, um, they're united around the idea that, that, the, that the church, which is universal, small-c Catholic, across space and time, is also, in a sense, invisible. Um, it's an invisible church, and it it's, consists of the justified sinners. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, if you're not that if you're not a justified sinner, you are outside of, of the church. And so, um, you know, that that definitely I mean, and it, you definitely see it in Luther's writings, especially in his commentaries on, on Genesis uh, when he speaks of the church. And so it's like um, that really can't be used, I think, as a good criticism against Protestantism that we actually in, in many ways have a high ecclesiology. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're right on. Uh, I think that's spot on. Uh, mm -hmm. It's so interesting, isn't it? When the reformers encounter, when the magisterial reformers encounter certain radical groups and, and they are, you know, diverse and, and sometimes very different from one another, but when they, when they encounter some of the most extreme versions, uh, the reformers really do cringe when they hear certain radicals say the church has been lost since mm -hmm. the apostles. And I, I don't, I mean, part of the reason they cringe is because that's such a dismal view of history, mm -hmm. <laughs> first of all. Um, but I, I think the other reason they, they cringe is because uh, they understand that Jesus, Jesus has been faithful to his words. Uh, he's been faithful to do what he says, that he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail. And, and that the Holy Spirit has not disappeared. <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit has been uh, faithful to, um, uh, to perfect that promise across the ages. Uh, so that to say that everything's been dark since the apostles is in one sense to to accuse uh, the the Holy Trinity itself of, of failing to, to do that which it, it had promised. Uh, I think that the reformers looked at the, it's some of these radicals and said, um, if what you're saying is true, then you've really cut us off. Uh, you've cut us off. You, you, you've really chopped our legs out from under us. And you've given Rome... Uh, credence. Uh, you've given Rome credibility. Their, their accusation of, of, of novelty and innovation, it, it then sounds more credible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, the, you know, the popular image of, of the Reformation that a lot of people have in their mind is, it is one of like, of protest, right? Uh, it's not, it's always kind of a, uh, and it was a protest, and it, and it was a conflict. Uh, but for instance, uh, the popular image people have in their mind when you say Reformation will be an image probably of Luther nailing the theses on the church door or, uh, but all to say is that um, it is seen as a moment of protest, a period where certain people in the church took 
uh, big issues with others in the church of their day. And of course, it in soon time, you know, broke broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. So we tend to think, you know, Protestant and Catholic as two different things, you know, and, you know, the worship, the culture, the ethos between what we can see in the Roman Catholic Church and what we see in the broader Protestant churches are very different. Um, there are there are things we see as distinctively Catholic and distinctively Protestant, if you will. But um, but if we were to take a time machine back to the 16th century and see the early development of, you know, the Reformation, uh, we see some, you know, key figures uh, like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli over in Switzerland, Thomas Cramner in England, as, as being very conscious of, you know, this concept of Catholicity that we've been talking about. Um, and they saw their efforts uh, that they, they put forth as to, to ensure the church remains truly Catholic, um, as, you, as, you so, as you put it a little bit ago. What were these efforts? Like, what are some of the, um, what were some of the, the main, the central principles, I guess, that really united all the reformers um, uh, to ensure this Catholicity as they saw it? Well, there, there certainly was a lot uh, that united the reformers uh, with, with the church Catholic, the church universal. I think sometimes, you know, we, when we go back to the 16th century, um, there can be a, a danger because uh, our, our eyes are, are drawn towards just the mountain of books that are published by 16th century uh, individuals on both sides of the issue. And uh, we're naturally wrapped up in, and rightly so, we're wrapped up in debates over justification and uh, where, where is ultimate authority? Where does that reside? Is it, uh, what, how do we define tradition? And, and what does that mean for say ecclesiology and, and the papacy and, and so on? Mm -hmm. and, and some of these debates then carry over into you know, the afterlife. Well, what, what do we think of purgatory? Um, <clears throat> these debates were critical. Uh, in some sense, they were overdue. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that uh, nobody in history had thought through these issues. I mean, when we go back to uh, Augustine, Augustine and the Pelagian controversy, Augustine is thinking through how do we define grace? Um, what, what, is, what, uh, what do we make of original sin? And for good reason, then, uh, the reformers are indebted to someone like Augustine. But the, the danger I'm speaking of is this. Um, we can assume then that to be Protestant means that that's the sum of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we see this today in, in countless ways. Um, you take, uh, it could be a seminary student, it could be a Christian in the pew, it could be a pastor. And if you were to ask them, uh, what is the definition of Chalcedon? you probably would get a blank stare. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, wh why would that, how could that happen? Uh, given the fact that um, here is an area of the Christian faith, Christology, that is a matter of orthodoxy, right? Um, likewise, some, we could do a similar exercise with the Trinity, let alone the attributes of God and, and so on. The point I'm trying to make is, um, 
there, it, what the reformers choose to debate is, um, or let me put it this way, what the, what the, the, those areas where the reformers are silent are just as, um, are, are just as telling as those areas where they are vocal. Mm -hmm. In other words, we need to make sure that we are paying attention to the, the grand sweep of, of theology that they took no issue with mm -hmm. and they had no debate with. Uh, and, and that's a lot. Um, is, yeah. Everything from uh, theology proper to uh, um, various components of anthropology and ethics to um, um, Christology uh, and so much more, uh, even eschatology. Um, it's a lot. And so mm -hmm. here, I, I think the, the, the corrective that I'm trying to make is to say when the reformers uh, appealed to their Catholicity, uh, they did so in at least two ways. One, they demonstrated that they were Orthodox. Um, and this is why uh, Luther, as boisterous as Luther is early on, uh, later in his career, his career uh, he's very intentional to write on the creeds. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, when you look at uh, um, the Reformed wing of the Reformation, they are... Uh, quite uh, direct in their confessions uh, <laughs> as to their allegiance to Christian orthodoxy. Um, even, uh, well, we could give an example that might be more familiar to your listeners. Uh, when you think of the English Reformation, mm -hmm. someone like John Jewell. Uh, John Jewell, he's making, at a very critical moment in the history of England, he's making Basically, he's essentially making an apology mm -hmm. for Catholicity to demonstrate that the Church of England um, uh, has the right to make that claim. Uh, so uh, my point is, um, for each wing of the Reformation, they are, are attempting to demonstrate their Catholicity, first and foremost, by means of their orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why I think when they see uh, certain radicals that are strained on matters of orthodoxy, the reformers are very quick to separate them themselves. So you mm -hmm. think of uh, Menno Simons and Johannes uh, Lasko uh, over Chalcedonian Christology. Right. I mean, we could sum up the entire debate uh, in a sentence. I mean, it's essentially Lasko saying to, to Menno Simons, uh, if only you had read the definition of Chalcedon. Right. Uh, then we could have avoided this this entire uh, deviation into to very aberrant Christology. And so um, that's the first thing. The second thing I would mention is this, even on those disputed doctrines, mm -hmm. such as the authority of scripture or justification, sola fide, uh, even there, isn't it interesting that the reformers, um, they don't say, okay, well, here's the exception <laughs> to our mm -hmm. Catholicity. Uh, we understand we're doing something new here. Uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, they, they are going back and they are retrieving the argument uh, of, of certain church fathers 
uh, and sometimes even certain medieval thinkers in order to buttress their position mm -hmm. on, uh, say, the formal or the material principle of the Reformation. Now, granted, sometimes it's a development. It doesn't always happen at once. I think with Luther, for instance, it takes time. Um, Luther is, you know, when you read Luther, uh, from, from one year to the next, he's maturing and developing in his thought. And he's very mm -hmm. humble to, he, he knows that. Um, but the point is, whether it's someone like Luther who's developing on the spot or someone else like a John Jewell, who, who seems at times to be, um, you know, his feet planted in one spot, uh, either way, they both, they all recognize this, so that even when they are making their case um, for these disputed areas of doctrine, they are essentially saying to Rome, well, Calvin says this, doesn't he? He says, if the church fathers were put on the scale, they, it would tip in our favor. Right. Uh, and here he doesn't just mean, you know, the, the Trinity or Christology. He, he is referring to those disputed doctrines. Yeah. So, so even think, like sola, sola fide, I came across... Um, this uh, a blog online that had just you know all this i guess it was kind of proof texting away but all these um excerpts from the fathers on yeah. uh justification by faith and it all sounded very reformational i know there's some <laughs> you know there is some different concepts of grace that that have you know were may have been at play but but um the, the idea of uh your your work's not contributing anything that's not some unique reformational um insight <laughs> at all so uh, it's really not um and, and even when you uh you know you think of someone like thomas cranmer uh in his sermon on uh on justification uh you can see you know if, if any if someone who's theologically minded they can they can see what he's after here that there's been this this happy exchange that's taken place Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that there's been an imputation of Christ's righteousness. Well, I don't think Cranmer is, is just inventing this. Right. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't think he, he thinks I'm the first one to see this since the Apostle Paul. <laughs> right. It's interesting. I've, I've read some, uh, you know, some historians, and they don't know what to do with Cranmer at this point because they think, well, they either will say, no, 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 he can't be saying that. Or he is saying it, and uh, they're not quite sure how to interpret it. But if you understand what Cramer's doing, uh, in, in many ways he's doing what many of the other reformers did. He's he's appealing uh, to an understanding of grace that uh, is not new, uh, but actually quite ancient, even if it might be the case that um, the 16th century does, uh, with, with all the disputes, bring it along, in a, in a sense. And through all the exegesis of books like Galatians and Romans and, and some of the theological disputations. Um, I mean, Luther says as much, doesn't he? He says he, he loves Augustine because Augustine understood the primacy of grace. Mm -hmm. um, even if Luther says, I'm not quite sure if he got all the way to the, the manner by which we receive this grace imputation, it, you know, maybe he still has this notion of an infusion. And so Luther's so you know wrestling with Augustine there, but but on the whole he recognizes he's indebted, and that's that's the point. Yeah, I was going to say um, the uh, you said there was historians who uh, were baffled by Cramner using this language. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, 
I'm not gonna ask who they were. I'm just like I just. I mean, I know they're. I'm. I'm just. I'm. I suspect maybe it's, it's those type of Anglican historians that don't see Cramner as and the English reformers as having anything to do with the Continental Reformation because there is that kind of revisionist, uh, you know, that James and I know all too well uh, narrative of the English Reformation as opposed to the you know the Continentals that went too far. But that's actually no, they were they were very much has shared much of a more of a kinship and direct. Uh, influence from <laughs> from or exchange of, <laughs> exchange of ideas from them so yeah <laughs> i'm just surprised yeah i think your instincts right there yeah <laughs> um <laughs> so uh let's i just i know there's probably there's a lot you could talk about with this question but maybe just to give us like a couple examples you know we you mentioned earlier about how you know the early church fathers um being uh some a group that the reformers would often appeal to and and like Calvin even saying, look, they, they fall in our favor and not with Rome, if you go. But um, a lot of your book, from what I understand, is um, looking at uh, the late medieval context that the Reformation comes out. I mean, nothing in history yeah. emerges in a vacuum. And so what, you know, what there's lots of, of course, from my own study of it, there's lots of different strands of currents of religious thought going on in you know the 1300s the 1400s and into the 1500s in late medieval catholicism um and and the reformation isn't just like as much as it is it sees itself as trying to retrieve the much more distant past and you know the the, the spirit of scripture and 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 as they saw at the early church with which kept that alive but um but also there were there were they were very much informed by some late medieval things um or you know there there was late medieval theologies that lent themselves to uh or from like i'm thinking bernard of clairvaux is 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 a big influence on luther you know people like haiku Olbermann really and who's the uh burnt is it burnt ham i think another but yeah he, he's pointed that out you know and so um I'm just, what are some of these late medieval things going on that really paved the way for the Reformation? Not just like societal and economic and the, in the, in the church um, abuses, obviously that paved the way for the Reformation, but like what, what, what contributed to it in a positive sense, I guess. Yeah, I, this is so important. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, I think one of the worst things, you know, you could do is if you were to walk into a classroom and teach on the Reformation Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, many books on the Reformation, though they're excellent. One of the worst things you could do is just ignore um, the medieval context. Um, part of the reason is the, the Reformers wouldn't have recognized that. I mean, they, they would have thought of themselves as what we would today call medieval men. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have these, you know, nice, neat categories like we do now. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, to a certain degree, they didn't have those. Uh, that that's more or less our hinds, you know, hindsight looking back. And so it's incredibly important uh, because otherwise I fear if we jump right into the Reformation, we don't understand exactly what they're doing. Uh, a great example of this is 1517. Um, on the, the social and ecclesiastical side of things, most narratives of the Reformation are fixated on Luther's 95 Theses. 
and you know the the famous and infamous narrative of indulgences and how this is disturbing Luther uh, even pastorally and and that's all right and good right um, however there is a a theological context that's occurring that to, to that story um, and and one that uh, I think we're less aware of um, just prior to Luther and those theses, those 95 theses, Luther is uh, presenting some other theses um, that, that more or less make up a disputation against classic theology. Now, this is really telling because uh, in, in what I call the oppositional narrative of, of Reformation, which I don't recommend, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is very popular though, we think, aha, here's Luther standing against the dark ages. You know, this is Luther against um, uh, those, those uh, speculative, rationalistic, unbiblical scholastics. And uh, now the Reformation has broke through and Luther is uh, casting off the chains of scholasticism. And uh, thank God the Reformation has, has brought um, true doctrine back. Well, that that narrative is just uh it it's just bogus mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, i don't know how else to put it because when you look at 1517 that's not what's happening um it's not it's not just luther either even when you look at other uh corners of the reformation it's not what's happening um luther is trained in a very specific uh stream of scholasticism it's not uh, necessarily the, the scholasticism of the high middle ages. Uh, when you think of say uh, Anselm or Aquinas, uh, rather Luther is born and bred on a late medieval scholasticism, what is sometimes called the Via uh, Moderna. Mm -hmm. And here are figures like William of Ockham and uh, especially Gabriel Beale. Mm -hmm. So there are other figures that, that predate them, uh, such as Duns Scotus. Um, the reason this is so important is because from Scotus to Occam to Beale, they have made uh, a very significant shift away from earlier scholastics. Mm -hmm. And they've done this philosophically as well as theologically. Uh, to sum it up, they are uh, more or less presenting a voluntarism and a nominalism that has significant consequences for soteriology, um, as well as much more. The, the you know the relationship yeah. between faith and reason, and and how we even you know are there universals? It, this this affects you know there is an entire different paradigm for metaphysics. But you know all those issues aside, uh, it also affects soteriology. And so just, uh, I know you said all those issues aside, but let's maybe break down yeah. <laughs> a couple of those things. So the Via Moderna school, this kind of later school, Luther's more trained in, um, these figures would say that they, they, they have follow or they promote uh, voluntarism, which is, if, if, and you can correct me, and this might be a bad way of putting it, but this is basically the idea that God um, is has total freedom and does whatever he wants and Therefore, um, some of the earlier scholasticism that was very worked out with how God is in his nature 
how God operates in the world. It almost felt to a point of where it was confining God. Is that kind of a fair way to? Yeah, they would, they would probably hedge it a little bit more and say, uh, God's God, uh, is not going to do something that goes against his nature. And so mm-hmm. like the first and second commandments, um, those are, are true and, and are not to be changed. Uh, but other commandments could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that, uh, you know, that, that radical sense of, of volunteerism coming through. The reason this is so significant uh, is because by the time you get to Gabriel Beale, um, here's someone who's preaching. And Beale looks at the way grace has been articulated in the past by mm-hmm. folks like Aquinas uh, or or Augustine and, and many others. He misunderstands them, first of all. That's important. Uh, there's been a great, uh, some great work done showing that uh, Beale misrepresents Aquinas to uh, Luther, which, mm-hmm. which didn't help. But that issue aside, Beale essentially says, well, um, he, he, he rejects the notion that grace must be primary, uh, as if there is this... Um, uh, concrete, unchangeable understanding of divine justice that would require grace to be primary for um, any subsequent action on, on man's part. Instead, and so notice there's an, in, in the old, the old way, um, there is a very um, co- a concentrated understanding of divine justice and righteousness mm-hmm. that, that sets up the primacy of grace. Uh, Beale dispenses with that. And uh, Beale says, well, God can do whatever he wants in the voluntary mm-hmm. sense of his free will. And so by virtue of just uh, his, his voluntarist will, he makes a, a covenant. And here it is. If, and there's the big word, if, if you do your best, if you do what lies within you, then God will reward you with with the grace needed um mm-hmm. this assumes right. a lot. That, and that but of course luther um a lot of luther's early earlier protests is really in many ways rebellion against his teacher beale because he's totally against this idea that you even have the ability to do any good on your own before grace would be in the picture right so that you're, you're right on it <laughs> yeah there's this great line i got yeah i'm, I'm I'm getting brownie points. Yeah, I know yeah, you already yeah. knew that, but I'd, no, I'm not trying to show off mine. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're you're right on target. And I spent a lot of time on this in the book and in several chapters because um, there's this illustration used of well, it's like a bird who's injured, um, and if the bird does what that just musters up what's within him. Mm-hmm. Uh, because God's gave him that command, fly, fly. If he if he just does it and it just starts to try to, you know, flap his wings and get up in the air, then God will come along like like the wind and you know pick up his injured wing and you know move him along. And mm. and Luther, Luther being Luther, he has this great moment where he says, uh, that's that's rubbish. Right. <laughs> he said the bird's wing isn't injured. The bird's been shot down. It's it's broken. It's dead. <laughs> it's it's six feet under. Luther. Well, and Luther's anthropology is just so much lower. He would say, I mean, uh, the thing that, to use another illustration, when Jesus raises the 
the the widow of Nain, the widow's uh, son, uh, he's totally dead. He can't wiggle yeah. his wing, or as if he doesn't have a wing, he can't wiggle his arm. He's totally dead. It takes a complete alien move, right, to put life yeah. in. Yeah, <laughs> so that's exactly right. And um, but Luther at first bought into this, right, because mm-hmm. this is he's those who taught Luther, his professors, they're giving him books by Beale. Mm. And he's reading Beale's texts, and at first he 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 tries it on. He really does, and I think in Luther's own experience, he realizes uh, this is going to crush me. Um, and, and and beyond that, he's got major questions, uh, even some metaphysical ones. Uh, you have to look for them; they're subtle, but they're there. I mean, Luther starts to wonder: Well, is this the way we should understand the justice of God? Mm-hmm. And and is even though Beale has told me God won't go back on his promise here, uh, it is a voluntarist understanding of his free will. So so how do I know that? But then the the, the really crushing issue for Luther is he starts to, to wonder, how do I even know if I've done my best? Yeah. And every time I think I have, I go back because I, I find something. Hmm. So in, in that sense, it's really crushing for Luther um there's more to it than that um there's a whole metaphysic that comes along with this because because often it's it's not just um you know bill's not just this isn't coming out of nowhere uh occam has had quite the effect as well with with his nominalism there's some metaphysical issues here that we we, you know we probably don't have time to get into but you know essentially denying the existence of universals um, Mm -hmm. that trickles down into bill's soteriology as well um all that to say um, when you look at 1517, Luther, is he really has had enough. And so even before he writes those 95 theses addressing indulgences, which is a bit more on the societal and social and pastoral end of things, um, here with his, this disputation, he's going right after Scotus, Occam, and Beale. He names them again yeah. and again, and he has no patience for them. Um, and, and this is outrageous to his professors who taught that, who taught Luther this system. Uh, here, Luther is dispensing with it. He's criticizing it. It will still take him time from mm-hmm. 1517 to 1525 when he has that famous debate with Erasmus to yeah. work out, okay, then what, what exactly is happening with God's grace? But Luther at least understands uh, I need to return to the Augustinian understanding of grace and, and its primacy. Uh, this this voluntarist nominalist idea of, of the covenant and uh, the, the conditionality of, of it on, on our best is, is not, um, he's seen both from Augustine and from scripture, this is not the way to go. So uh, this is just one example, but uh, I mean, when you look, this is Luther's own unique context, right? But when you look mm-hmm. at the rest of the Reformation, what you see is that actually other reformers, uh, some are, are trained in this, this uh, via Moderna. Uh, others, though, are trained in Thomism. And so they don't have necessarily the same struggle that Luther has. You think of Martin Bootser, for example, or Peter Martyr Vermigli uh, and others. They don't have that same exact uh, story as luther has 
Uh, in one sense, even though they will take issue with Aquinas on, you know, is grace, you know, is righteousness infused? Is it imputed? At the end of the day, they have an Augustinian and Thomistic metaphysic in place so that they're not, they're not as torn up from the beginning by mm -hmm. late medieval scholasticism and, and it's, it's, uh, it's entire paradigm shift, if that makes yeah. sense. I'm um I'm curious because because you mentioned scholasticism earlier and of course this podcast had an had a whole episode on um the the era of Protestant scholasticism also called Protestant Orthodoxy and um but I kind of want to hear your take because obviously if you if you do if you look at kind of the 16th through the 17th century you see the scholastic method of doing theology which was which was uh, reached its high point in the Middle Ages, but by the 17th century, you're, you see it, uh, the scholastic method of doing theology being employed by Protestants for, um, yeah. for um, I guess, apologetical reasons against Rome and kind of against, within, kind of against each other in a way, Reform versus Lutheran. Um, but uh, it seems like the Reformation has a complicated relationship with scholasticism because, I mean, you see it, I mean, as early as Melanchthon, who's like, Luther's like a, number one, you know, his 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 right hand person um, already is is working out a, a method of sort which is scholastic and and um, it, so it seems like that's. Can you speak a little about like why that is? Like, do you, obviously there have there are key departures from medieval scholasticism going into that the reformers had, but there's also you see the adoption of this method so. Um, how is that justified, I guess, uh, in, how would you, how would you say it? Yeah, I, this is a, an important point. Um, I think sometimes when people hear the words scholastic, uh, they have all kinds of caricatures in their head about, and usually they're pejorative ones, right? Um, mm. uh, sc the scholastic though, simply, uh, refers to the schools, uh, during the, the Middle Ages, in which um, uh, a student of theology would be very resolved to contemplate God and all things in relation to God. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in the schools, this method becomes um, uh, really quite uh, con convenient uh, if you're a student. Right, because um, well, just think of you know Thomas Aquinas and his his Summa, uh, in which you have a question posed, an article. Um, it forces you to think about the question not merely from your point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to consider what are the objections that would counter my position first. Um, and so you have to do justice to those. And then uh, followed by uh, a reply, uh, well, and on the contrary, which it might just be a, a one sentence statement, it could be from scripture, could be from a church father, followed by your reply uh, to the question itself. And then uh, very briefly, a uh, response to the initial objections. Uh, sometimes this happens within a page. Uh, maybe sometimes it's longer. It could be two, three pages, but it's very short. Well, <clears throat> this type of method uh, 
<clears throat> it's it's used. I think this is what's sometimes misunderstood. Uh, in the 16th century, it's used by both sides. Uh, so mm -hmm. whether you're Roman Catholic or Protestant, um, uh, in in one way or another, everybody is is benefiting and has benefited. I mean, if you were a student of theology, um, you're you're familiar with this method. Um, sometimes it could take different forms. So you think of uh, Peter Lombard and his sentences in which um, Lombard, this is very fascinating, where Lombard is uh, posing, okay, here is presenting uh, specific doctrines of the Christian faith. And then uh, he is drawing resourcing from the past, both from sacred scripture itself, as well as uh, those voices from history uh, to show how has the church answered this question. If you're a bright student of theology, you might come along uh, and and not just write a, a commentary on Lombard sentences, but you might actually uh, give answers that up to that point uh, maybe haven't been entertained yet or pose new questions that need to be answered and so on. So I think it's important to remember that scholasticism uh, is is merely a tool for the student of theology mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily uh, a specific theology or philosophy or ethic sure. now that said that said uh by means of of these methods uh in the schools uh, of course naturally um a certain philosophy and theology develops right mm -hmm. and so you take for example aquinas well uh, Thomas Aquinas is using this method in a very brilliant way to, to uh, answer questions in philosophy and theology and in ethics itself. Right. Um, but he's doing so out of a certain paradigm. Uh, he's doing so uh, indebted to um, a uh, Neoplatonist understanding of philosophy uh, that would include some Augustinian uh, facets, as well as um, some more Aristotelian uh, contributions. In the end, uh, he is able to look at the advantages and the disadvantages of Plato and Aristotle and bring about a pretty remarkable synthesis that builds on Augustine before him, but, but really goes beyond that to understand everything from faith and reason to um, uh, creation and providence and divine ideas and um, uh, universals and particulars and, and and all of this has implications then for uh, theology. Uh, how does God relate to the world and and how do mm -hmm. we understand God's presence and what is a sacrament? You know, etc. Um, all that to say, when you when you arrive at the late medieval period, there is a they too are scholastics. They too are using the methods that they are seeing and, and experiencing in the schools. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is a self-conscious uh, shift away from some of the uh, Augustinian and Thomistic uh, paradigms before them, as we just talked about with voluntarism, nominalism mm -hmm. uh, in particular. Now, what's really important to understand here, if I could say one more thing, is by the time you get to the 16th century, 
and here, keep in mind, I'm, sum, I'm summing up, you know, past centuries here. Yeah. So, you know, listeners will want to go to the sources and see, you know, the nuances of, of what I'm saying. Uh, but by the time you get to the 16th century, okay, there, there is a narrative out there, uh, a very popular one, both, uh, you'll see it even in academia, that will blame the reformers to say the reformers departed from that earlier scholastic um, to mystic metaphysic mm-hmm. uh, that could explain how we participate in the likeness of God and could explain God's real presence in the world, etc. cetera. Uh, and they instead became the carriers of uh, that late medieval scholastic metaphysic, uh, voluntarism and nominalism. And that explains why we ended up with modernism. Yeah, that's related to my my next uh, question. I, I first okay. wanted to, to say, um, from what it sounds like, it sounds like you maybe have a similar uh, view of the how the, the whole scholastic tension with the Reformation that maybe like Richard Muller does. It's it's like you have to distinguish between the method and the the method of scholasticism and the particular content that you found in medieval a lot of medieval scholasticism my thought would be that that's a good distinction that where the reformers probably saw the issue is that when you're working with you can work with you can make the distinction between a methodology all you want uh but as long as they're working within kind of broader aristotelian categories like you said some of that elements are just going to slip in um for those so foreign elements are maybe just going to slip into the 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 theology and just um inevitably i don't know i don't know would that be fair to say uh, i guess uh, well uh i would put it this way um well first of all i I don't buy into the narrative that i i just mentioned uh that blames the reformation for secularism as if the reformers cut that cord of participation between god and the world and they are the you know carrying on the baton of voluntarism and nominalism that then explains the enlightenment. I don't buy into that narrative yeah. for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them is the reformers are way more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, it's not that there's no signs of voluntarism or nominalism, uh, but on the whole, they're actually, you know, like the example we just gave from Luther, you can see Luther has actually real problems uh, mm-hmm. with how it's in- infected salvation. Calvin, you look at Calvin's uh, theology, Calvin does have a theology of participation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Todd Billings has shown this really well, and we could give more examples. Um, But but to address your question, uh, that angle, uh, I would just add, when you look at the 16th and 17th centuries, um, everyone is assuming uh, to one degree or another, those basic truths that uh, Aristotelian metaphysics um, handed handed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that, this is important to countering that, you know, secularization type of narrative. The reason I say that is because there's a world of difference between uh, the 16th and 17th uh, metaphysic and what you see in the Enlightenment forward with someone like Immanuel Kant or David Hume uh, and many others, of course. In other words, there you certainly do see 
Uh, I mean, all of a sudden, basic Aristotelian categories like causality, which in the 16th and 17th century, everyone took for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, there's a cause and effect. Of course, there's final causality. That explains why there's purpose in our world. And, and the Christian could then, you know, tie that purpose to God as the creator. I mean, this was just, you know, 101. Right. But enter into modernism, suddenly uh, all of this is thrown into question. Um, final causality can't, can no longer be taken for granted. So my point is, um, it's not that, uh, I think every, you know, when you look at, uh, say, the 17th century uh, and take Protestant classicism at large, you know, there's Lutherans, there's Anglicans, uh, there's Reformed Presbyterians. They're all <coughs> Protestant. Um, many of them are calling them, we, we would call them Protestant classics because they are using the classic method. Uh, Richard Moeller, for example, has done a great job showing that uh, uh, in the Reformed wing, for example, the Reformed classics, they're very self-conscious to use this classic method, uh, but they do so to reject SCOTUS uh, mm -hmm. and to instead side with a more Augustinian or even Thomistic metaphysic. Well, that's world. That's a world away from then the metaphysical shift you see in the Enlightenment, uh, in which the reformers, I think, would have been shocked. So that's where I think, uh, though my book isn't trying to address this as its main point, mm -hmm. I think it's really, really crucial to recognize when we make our case for the Reformation, and some of this work honestly still needs to be done, uh, we need to understand that Protestant scholasticism is not contrary to the Reformation. Right. It's using, it has new challenges, mm -hmm. uh, Socinianism. Uh, it has new goals, the codification of catechisms and confessions. Um, entire systems of theology are being written by Lutherans, Anglicans, and the Reformed. Uh, in light of all of those challenges and goals, the scholastic method becomes really appropriate and really handy then to say, okay, uh, we can't only focus on soteriology. Now we need to talk about the Trinity again or Christology. Yeah. And as they do so, they start to say, okay, well, what type of philosophical tradition should we be indebted to? And what type should we actually stray from? Um, those are pivotal questions. Yes, there are differences, you know, and, and yes, you, you can always find places where you might think, oh, you know, you probably should have corrected Aristotle here. Whereas, okay, you're okay to, you know, uh, bring them along here. Uh, there's always those points of tension, but on the whole, they're still operating within that metaphysical paradigm uh of participation mm -hmm. that you then see explode and mm -hmm. and then is then substituted for a whole new paradigm when you get yeah. to modernism which is based on uh the the uh the a higher view of human reason um and, and the sovereign self uh when when uh at least luther for for instance would have seen uh our reason as 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 foolish you know <laughs> not and so um zondervan's website for uh the website's page for your books is that one of the things your book tackles is the common caricatures that charge the reformation with uh schism or assume the reformation was a gateway to secularism and so i know that's a popular talking point so i'm interested in reading your uh your rebuttal your uh, refutation of that um um 
which is very i mean it's i think it's clear as day as long as soon as you go into the history uh, it's clear as day how that is how it's so inaccurate to say that about the reformation but i'm interested to see what see what you're what read more full fully uh what how you address that so that'll be good um all right well uh dr barrett thanks for being on the show and uh, yeah thank you very yeah. appreciated and uh and really i had, enjoyed our conversation had, had kind of a joke question at the <laughs> end um that i was promised um something if i were if i were to ask <laughs> this um and i hope you're not offended by it and i'll edit it out if uh uh if i offend you um so so uh, uh some lutherans on facebook they, they put a picture of your book up and they said and it's, it's lutherans that are excited about the book by the way but he said but in fact in light of the fact that the author is a baptist calvinist does anyone find it ironic that the cover of his new book has an image of luther administering the means of grace in accordance with, with the lutheran understanding of them on it and then i commented well he's going to be on my podcast next week do you want me to do you want me to ask him and they uh and he said tell him to become lutheran and i said <laughs> that an anglican telling a baptist to become a lutheran will reimburse you in beer for your advertisement services yeah I said, I said deal six six pack for mentioning it so they automatically owe me a six pack five cases if he converts and he said a fair bargain. So I have a deal. I, I'm all, already getting a six pack now that I mentioned it. So, well, <laughs> you don't have to answer that, by the way. <laughs> the uh, if you look at the cover, this wasn't planned, uh, but my, my Lutheran friends might think otherwise. I don't know. They put the uh, title right over, right over the baptism. <laughs> there you go. That's it to I, me. I, I didn't pay attention. Zondervan about that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't pay attention to me. It just looked like some pretty late medieval, early modern artwork. <laughs> <That's all>. Yeah, <laughs> I was not paying that close attention as they were apparently. So, but nice. So, well, looking forward to reading it. Uh, looks like a big book, uh, as you just held up. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Doctor Barrett. God bless, and um, we will. Uh, we will, we're delighted to to hear. Uh, to, to read your work and um, I'm sure you'll be appearing on other shows and, and, and promoting it and talking about it. So uh, uh, it sounds like it's an important contribution to the ongoing uh, conversation.